0: Good morning, welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor here. And today uh, we're gonna continue a series called Pack Your Bags. A lot like that video tried to capture that uh, there's, there's just life that happens and that we're constantly in this journey and that many of us have kind of certain markers to mark that year, that journey. And one of the ways that we mark journey is through just the calendar. And that this series, we wanted to start 2018 Um, really to get it to the heart of what we really sincerely believe can happen this year in your life, that we said, what if 2018 was the best year of your life? What would make this year the best year you've ever lived? What would it have in it? What would you need to take with you to experience that? And the the Pack Your Bag series was born out of this kind of questions of like, what would it look like as a people to walk through and experience the best year that we've ever had? One of the reasons I think I can be that confident, and we'll kind of walk through some of that this morning, but I just look back to the last year. 2017 was the best year we've ever had as a church. I mean, we saw incredible things happen, and I believe it's just the tip of the iceberg of what's coming. And so we wanted to come into this year with hopefulness. We wanted to come in this year with this kind of like our eyes looking forward and dreaming. And so we wanted to start our series around this idea of what do we need to put into our bag? What is it that we need to take with us and what are the things that we need to leave behind in order to step into a year filled with better decisions and fewer regrets? To ultimately arrive at the end of 2018 and look back and say this really was the best year I ever had. And uh, one of the ways that we knew that we needed to tackle that was last week with Jason's message. Uh, He kind of pressed into something that none of us like to talk about or honestly think about. He talked about debt and the power of finances to hold us back and that oftentimes one of the biggest stressors, one of the leading causes for divorce, one of the leading frustrations of anxiety and stress that keeps you awake at night is debt and money. And so we kind of went straight for the jugular in some ways, last week and said let's get this one off the table and let's kick start a series. And so tonight some of you are signed up for a three week journey called Money Matters where we're just gonna be unpacking how to navigate debt and how to take control of your finances instead of your finances controlling you. And if you haven't signed up yet, just kinda wanna give you this little commercial moment that say in the app you can do that. Uh, It is free, it's gonna be uh, 90 minutes the next three Sunday nights. It's here. Uh, we've done a lot of the work for you, and it really has the power to transform your year, and for you to not just experience better money decisions, but to actually be in control of your money and tell it where to go instead of it telling you where to go, All right? And that's, that'd be a great way just to kind of kick off the year. So if you're interested in that, it's in the app. Um, if you are interested in the child we have a couple spots available to swing by starting point today before you leave. Right, with that said, Okay, I just wanted to give that commercial. I, w- I want to talk about moving forward. Uh, I just came across a recent uh, article. I still read scientific journals. My undergrad was in biochemistry, and so I'm still very much a science nerd. And I came across a study uh, of some British researchers who had been testing this compound known as compound 516. And compound 516 had this extraordinary ability. They had kind of seg- segmented two different groups of Mice. They had one group of mice that they called couch potato mice, and they had another group of mice that they called Lance Armstrong mice, and couch potato mice and the Lance Armstrong mice were all fed the same diet. They lived in the same environment. They experienced the same kind of routines. Everything was exactly the same. The one difference between couch potato mice and the Lance Armstrong mice was compound 516, and here's what they saw The Lance Armstrong mice were called Lance Armstrong mice because those mice, even though they were fed the equivalent of a solid American diet filled with fats and sugars, they weren't overweight like the couch potato mice were. They weren't spending all their time lounging lethargically like the couch potato mice were. What they found were these mice, they had shinier coats, they ran 75 percent longer than regular mice could actually run. They were slimmer, they were healthier. Overall, they were physiologically like in shape. And all of this had happened in the course of a few weeks. Like visually, it's like me waking up in three weeks from now, and I've gone from being someone who thinks he's about to die when he goes up three flights of step to being someone who is a world-class runner. That's the difference they saw and the mice population. And these researchers were like, we are on the cusp of discovering a pill that can recreate and simulate all the effects of exercise without any of the sweat that goes with it. And of course, people started salivating, right? I mean, I'll probably be honest. I would be very tempted to take that that pill, right? I mean, that's incredible. And the news kind of swept it up, and it kind of traveled around the globe, and Harvard researchers are working on the same idea because at the end of the day, there's something very appealing about the miracle cure to something. There's something very appealing to us about a pill that we could take that would fix our problems, that we as humans know intuitively that problems are part of life and any way we can get out of one, we will take it. And there is no pill that can fix most of the problems in our life. And this miracle drug is at least five years away, and the negative side effects is that every, every one of the Lance Armstrong mice died prematurely from cancer that riddled their entire bodies. So I guess there's a trade-off in that, right? But what I want to do this morning is I want to journey with you and, and give to you one thing that I think can have a miracle impact in your life. It's, it's not... It's not me overselling some kind of treatment or some shake or some shake weight, right? This is something that actually can have a significant impact in your life. It's one thing that you can shift and change and that I guarantee that weeks from now you will look back and you will start to notice that you're a different you. And on top of this, this isn't cutting edge, something that has been just discovered. This has been something that's been around for thousands of years and people have done it and it works. And to start 2018 off, I wanted to give you that. And over the next two weeks, build on what that is so that we really can experience a year of better decisions, fewer regrets. To get there, I want to start with um, a series of passages. As Typically, I usually only take one passage when I'm speaking from the Bible and teaching. And today, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to break one of my like, typical rules. I'm going to actually talk about a few passages but it's to set the backdrop for the one passage I want to teach from this morning. It's going to come from the book of Proverbs. And if you're new to faith or you're new to church, the book of Proverbs is in the Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, that the Christian Bible is really a kind of a two volume set. It is the Old Testament, which are the Jewish scriptures, and it is the New Testament, which are primarily letters and books written out of the life and times of Jesus and the immediate birth of the church following. Jesus' resurrection, that those two volumes make up what we call the Bible. The book of Proverbs is kind of nestled right in the middle of the Old Testament. It's written predominantly by one man who is considered by many scholars to be one of the wisest men who has ever lived. His name was Solomon. Solomon was a king. He was the great king who was the son of David, who was the greatest king of the Jewish people. And Solomon had this new Pressure and this new challenge that no one else in his family had ever dealt with before. You see, Solomon had built an empire. David had kind of started the thing. He'd kind of built this idea of a kingdom. He'd become this great king that everyone knew of. But David wasn't so much the king. He didn't really have so much of as a kingdom. He was really a great military general. And it's kind of the difference between a George Washington and a John Adams there's a different set of responsibilities that falls on the second person who takes over. And Solomon had that. He was building an empire. He was building roads. He was making money. He was establishing this country that was becoming a powerhouse regionally. And Solomon knew something. Solomon knew just like his father had passed away, he would pass away too. And so he had the pressure of passing on all of the wisdom he had to his children who would become the future royalty and leaders of his nation. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? For some of you who maybe own small businesses, you can kind of relate to that. You've felt that pressure of, well, what if our kids aren't ready to take over when we pass away? This is what Solomon was wrestling with. He's like, how do I train my kids to be prepared to become the future leaders of the nation? How do I overnight give them the power of castles, and empires, and trade deals, and armies, and enemies? How do I give that to them? And Solomon comes up with something that thousands of years later is still richly rewarding to us. He comes up with the book of Proverbs. Proverbs was originally written as parenting, preparation, royalty training material. It was to prepare his kids to take over and and to walk in the wisdom of God that he had walked in that had allowed him to build his nation. And so Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, does a few things that are unique. While a proverb is typically a, a phrase or a statement, a little story that gets told to teach a lesson, the book of Proverbs has a structure to it. And it's why I want to give you a couple of verses, because it's helpful. So as a parent, what does Solomon do? Well, he creates these characters, these individuals that he creates a name for. Some one is called the fool, the other is called the simple, and the one's called the sluggard. He creates these kind of stereotypes because he's trying to train his children to realize there are different ways of doing life. And then he creates this idea, this person called the wise. And with all of these different characters, he begins to speak and teach about who they are. And the one that he speaks about that I want us to look at this morning is the one called the sluggard which is not a phrase you've probably used this week or ever, right? Because the sluggard is not something that you and I commonly say in the English language, but the idea of the sluggard is really common. And the sluggard is something that Solomon spends multiple passages throughout the book of Proverbs trying to teach his kids what they look like so that they can avoid becoming one. It starts with kind of a silly, humorous lesson in verse 22 of um, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 13, he introduces something the sluggard would say. There's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. This is in relation to the sluggard being told to do something. His alarm goes off, and he hits, he doesn't just hit snooze. He turns it off, and he says, I can't go out there. There's a lion waiting. He's going to eat me, which you can imagine, right? Think of Solomon the father, and he's teaching his kids this. They're going to laugh like my daughter does, like that's silly, and he's telling them this very silly illustration about this stereotyped individual called the sluggard because he's wanting to make a point. He's wanting to teach them something about the sluggard. What he's really trying to do is he's trying to teach them about the mindset that the sluggard has. You see the same mindset in Proverbs 19:3, where it says, A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. It's the same idea that you see in the first proverb. This idea that somehow this individual, the sluggard, always has an external excuse for why he's not doing something. He always has an external reason for why he's not doing the things that he should be doing. He always has an excuse for why something out there is too hard for him to be able to do it. There's always a ready-made excuse for whatever life throws at him. She doesn't listen. My boss is too tough on me. I'm just not as smart as everyone else around me is. The sluggard always has a ready-made excuse. And the challenge is, is that ready-made excuse always turns into a regret later. And Solomon, as a loving father, says, I, I don't want to just prepare you to become king. I want to prepare you to be successful in life. And here's the first thing you have to realize is that your mindset will determine how your feet walk and how your mouth talks and how your eyes see. And that this mindset is one of the first lessons he gives his children because he understands at the heart of their heart, how they see the world and how they think about the world will determine the type of world they actually interact with and live in. And so this is what Solomon spends a lot of time trying to do. He's trying to teach them to avoid this human tendency to blame others. I don't know about you, but I, I see this regularly. I have a six-year-old, and there is a phrase that is used in my household. It happens about once to twice to seven times a week, and it sounds like this, daddy, and, it, and it's my six-year-old blaming me for something. I mean, last night at dinner, she did something. There was a spill, and she's like, daddy, And I'm like on the other side of the table, and I'm like, that is not my fault. Like, I did not do that. You are over there, and you spilled that. That wasn't me. I think it's something that we're kind of born being able to do, aren't we? Blaming someone else. I'd be a great driver if it wasn't for everyone else on the road. Because it's always easier to blame someone else. And Solomon knows that, and he's trying to teach his children to avoid that. Because when you spend your life blaming others, you don't just blame others. What you do is you give away the control of your life to others too. When you allow your circumstances to define you, what happens is that this this whole way of living your life actually has a name in psychological literature. It's called having an external locus of control. That makes you sound smart, smarter. You can use that this week. It's free. But you don't even have to tell them where you got it from. But this idea is called the external locus of control. And what an external locus of control is, is it's a mindset that sees external circumstances. It sees others. It's always shifting blame to something out there to avoid the inner realization of responsibility. And the external locus of control is something that is so prevalent in human psychology that Scientists have created a name for it, and they call it the external locus of control. Solomon had already picked up on this thousands of years before it was ever given a name that made you sound smart. And it was called the slugger. Having all the reasons out there for why I don't have to do something in here. And he cares enough for his children that he wants them to realize and recognize that mindset, but he also wants to give them an alternative because he realizes if you're not careful and you live in that mindset, it will only leave you with regret and excuses. It will not give you the results that you actually desire to see in your life. Because none of us ever stand at the altar looking at our significant other saying, man, I really hope this thing falls apart in about six to seven or eight years. None of us ever say, man, I can't wait to find myself in bankruptcy court, having to declare bankruptcy. None of us ever, ever want to get to a place where we're so physically unable to do things that we constantly find ourselves being just physically lethargic, like the couch potato mouse. Like, none of us set out for any of those things. But we arrive there, we end up there. And he recognizes this mindset will keep you there unless you replace it with something better. And it's this better mindset that he teaches his children in Proverbs 6. And that's the passage that's loaded in there that I want us to just look at together. He says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provision in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Remember, he's talking to his children. He's giving them this stereotype what to avoid, and now he points them to this very kind of clear, natural illustration of the type of mindset they should have. Because all of us as children saw the ants on the ground. As an adult, I don't see ants very much unless somehow they've infected my house. I don't see them on the ground like I used to, but when I was a kid, I saw them all the time. And Solomon recognizes my kids, they see these things every single day. He says, pay attention to them. Watch them. There is no grand air traffic controller for the ants. All right, ant number one, take a left up there. Ant number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and through 20, 2100, turn left with him. They, they have no central dispatch. There's no radio systems. And yet, somehow, even in the midst of most difficult circumstances, they snake through the cracks and the foundation of your house to get into your kitchen, into your pantry, to eat your food. When things out there are hard, what do they do? They break into your house and eat your food. And he's like, pay attention to that. They're resilient. They don't need to be told what to do. They take responsibility. They're not defined by their circumstances. If the outside conditions get cold, it gets dry, or the food drives up, they just move inside the castle or into your pantry because they take responsibility. This is this alternate mindset. He's trying to teach his children. It's it's not an external locus of control. It's called an internal locus of control. And it's one that's built on recognizing that while I can't control my circumstances, I don't have to be controlled by my circumstances, that I still have control of my choices. I grew up in a really broken kind of family context and one of the things that the best gift my mom ever gave me as a single parent living on welfare, trying to make it through and just kind of barely surviving some months is that my mom always said to us, you did not control where you came from, son, but you can control where you're going. Son, we'd spend time with family and I would see all the choices in their life and she was like, you you don't have to be defined by that. They've made choices in their life that has led them to where they are, but you can make choices that can take you very far from where they are. You have all the power, son. You make your choice. And this is kind of beat into me as a little kid who didn't really understand the weight, but she was doing the exact same thing that Solomon was doing to his kids. Of saying, look, at the end of the life, if you choose the sluggard way, your life will be filled with regrets. But if you choose the way of the ant, if you take the internal locus of control path, then your life will be filled with responsibility, not regret. And that's the two alternatives. Do you want a life filled with regret, or do you want a life that's filled with responsibility? Because those are the two paths he holds out for them. Roger Bannister, who was a British med student um, in early 1940s and 50s, um, liked to run as part of his kind of just... Conditioning helped kind of keep his mind. He could have gone into the Olympics, but he really wanted to go to med school. And in the midst of med school, he would run about 30 minutes a day. Bannister um, loved running. He really enjoyed it. And was kind of intrigued by this idea as a med student that the human body was supposedly not able to break a four-minute mile. It was traditionally kind of of common knowledge at the time that the human body, if it crossed the four-minute mile, its heart would explode. And Bannister, who's a med student, says, this is not right. Like, I I don't think that's true. I think the human body can break a four-minute mile. Up until that point, it had never been done. People had gotten close, but no one was willing to cross the line. So Bannister sets out to break the four-minute mile. And on May 6th in 1954, he does exactly that. He breaks the four-minute mile. And now, world-class athletes break the four-minute mile all the time. They call that running right? But here's what's intriguing. If you dig into Bannister and his journey as a med student and him processing through and then him eventually breaking this this four-minute mile barrier, what Bannister does that's really insightful is that Bannister would later recount how he did it. And what he talks about is he would spend time sitting, imagining in his mind running and crossing the finish line and looking over in the clock saying three minutes and 59 seconds. He would do that regularly because Bannister understood that before the body will break the four-minute mile, the mile, the mind had to break it first. And this is what Solomon recognized. He was like, look, what's gonna make your body successful is ultimately gonna come out of what makes your mind successful. Your body cannot break something that your mind has not broken first. And at at the seat of the heart, there has to be a mindset that understands that life, has to be filled with responsibility and recognizing that you have power to take control of your life, that that real results, real movement, real traction happens first by taking responsibility for your life. And that when you take responsibility for your life, you step into the driver's seat of your life and you get out of the passenger seat. I don't know about you, but there have been many moments in my life where I look around and what I see and what I feel is me doing passenger seat living. There's always someone who's at fault for where I am. That boss who just doesn't get it, doesn't get me, right? That spouse, that friend who's just so self-centered, they won't listen, And it's really easy for me to recount all the reasons and all the excuses for why I'm not where I should be in life, and it's their fault. But when you shift and you get into the driver's seat, this mindset starts to unlock some things for you. Just imagine your life right now. What if you had this mindset? How would your finances look different in light of what Jason talked about last week? Would you need all these credit cards? Or is there a version of you that walks in that says, I don't need a card because I got cash. Bam. Like, is there a version of you that goes into a conflict with your significant other, and instead of it turning World War III, you actually grow in your relationship because of the conflict? Is there a version of you? You see, I believe there is but it starts with a mindset that says, I have responsibility for my life and who I am and what I become. It is not defined by what's going on around me. It's defined by what I want to do and what I choose. But imagine you professionally with this mindset. Imagine you relationally with this mindset. Imagine your health. Imagine the way you parent if you quit riding the wave of your crazy emotional child and you walked in and you were in control, they weren't controlling you. And that we stopped making excuses. We stopped pointing fingers. And we raised a hand that says, I'm taking control and I'm taking responsibility for my life. Because that's all I can, control. I think what we would find is some powerful freedom. We would stop focusing on what others have said. We would stop focusing on what they did, and we would start paying attention and putting energy in the one place where we can see results, which is in what we say and what we do. Recognizing that power of responsibility transforms something. There's a game I play invisibly. I don't tell you I'm playing this, but whether it's professionally or whether it's relationally, I play this game in my head, and it's called How Is It My Fault? Because I'm really good at the alternative game. How is it your fault? But one of the things that I do underneath the surface when people are talking to me, especially if there's conflict involved, is I am playing this game, how is it my fault? What did I do that has led us to where I find myself? And while that game may not sound as fun, that game brings me a lot more control in my life than the alternative. Because when I give someone blame and when I give someone that burden that they have somewhere put me where I am, I lose control of my life. I don't wanna live my life out of control. And so whether it's in at my home life with Jenny and something's happened and I go to, how is it my fault? I'm like, you know what, sweetie, I should have been more sensitive to that with my daughter. I, babe, dad's so sorry. I should have been a little bit more compassionate. I didn't realize how that was gonna make your heart feel. And, and so let me say it this way. Like, to, even if you're only 1%, Find the 1%. Take control and play the game, how is it my fault? Imagine the last argument you've had. What if you and your spouse had played, how is it my fault? Imagine the last conflict at work. Had you and your coworker or your boss or your employee had played, how is it my fault? That simple game has the power to transform. And it puts you back in the driver's seat and it allows you to go where you wanna go. And it has the power, I think, to transform relationships. Even yesterday, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but um, the Hawaiian emergency system sent a push notification to every single person's cell phone that said "Ballistic, ballistic missile inbound. Seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. Television stations, whoop, whoop, whoop. This is not a test, this is not a test. Ballistic missile inbound, ballistic missile inbound. Radios being interrupted, whoop, whoop. all of this. And for 20 minutes, everyone is frantically trying to figure out what to do. People at hotels, there for on vacation, are being ushered down 36 flights into basements because a missile's headed their way. And then after about 20 minutes, the government starts to push more messages out and people start tweeting and they realize, okay, this was obviously not a drill, this was a disaster. And I watched the governor of Hawaii yesterday, he was in the emergency um, preparation center where the drill, where this uh, text message had originated from, and he's being interviewed by reporters and they were like, what's happened? He's like, we we had a mistake today in the midst of, uh, you know, a shift change, and they're like, well, can you tell us a little bit more? Like, I mean, we all have shift changes, but we don't we don't push out notifications that the world's about to blow up. And the guy was like, well, in the midst of our shift notification, one set of employees were going through the checklist, and someone pushed a button that accidentally triggered this, and it was just wrong, and it was one employee did it, and then reporters were like. What's that report? Like, what's that employee's name? Who did this? And standing in the back, so here's the Hawaiian governor. Standing in the back is the man who's in charge of this emergency facility. And he steps up and he says, it's my fault. He's like, it's on me. I'm going to go back and I'm going to figure out what what broke down that caused my team in the midst of transition to accidentally trigger this alarm but let me be clear, it was my fault. It's my responsibility. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, that's a guy I would wanna work with. That's a guy I'd wanna stand beside. Because when everyone else had served up an opportunity, a silver platter to to lay blame on someone, he stepped up and he demonstrated the type of mindset that Solomon challenged his kids to have, where he raised his hand and said, it's my responsibility. I did it. And he doesn't throw the employee under the bus. He steps into it. And then imagine your life, if you and I, if that's the way we chose to wake up each morning. No longer living our lives based on the rise and the fall and the circumstances around us, but waking up each day and saying, I'm going to end up somewhere today on purpose. And I'm in charge of that. And I'm going to make the choices. I'm not going to allow others to make choices for me. And it may mean I am dealing with difficult things, but I will not allow those difficult things to define me. I will not allow what others have said around me to describe me. You see, they don't get the opportunity to define me. They're not the Merriam-Webster in my life. I am. They don't get to describe, define, dictate, or determine where I end up. That is my job and my responsibility. Imagine if that's the mindset we stepped into our lives with. That we no longer look back to our parents or our family as the excuse for where we're headed. We no longer looked at our DNA or the difficult circumstances that we've been to or through to define us. That we lift our heads up and we recognize that what Solomon gave to his kids, God desired to give to you too, which is that you are responsible for you. You do you really well. I recently, uh, in the midst of kind of the Black Friday, I think is what that shopping day is called, um, I bought my wife and I a DNA test. They were running these specials, you know, where you have to spit for 37 minutes into this little tiny vial, and then you send it away to some government research facility that's collecting privately all the DNA of people who are so, uh, goofy to just send it to them, right? And so I do that, and and I get back my DNA results last week. I'm driving down the road and I get this ping and I'm like, oh my goodness, I finally get to see my DNA results. And one of the things I notice is that I have 1164 relatives scattered all around the nation. And I'm like, man, I am like the ultimate Jerry Springer show waiting to happen, right? Next week, Chris meets all 1164 of his relatives, right? I was like, I don't know any of these people because nobody in my family has sent their DNA in. So these people, I don't even know who they are. So I'm, you know, first it's like, I'm a Jerry Springer episode waiting to happen. But then I start to read my results because there's like five different kind of tests that they give you. And one of them I'm reading and I'm like, all right now, okay. I walk into the living room. They're not there. I walk into the kitchen. There's my wife and my daughter. And I'm like, I need to make an important announcement. You see, I have just seen my results for my DNA test. And some not so surprising things have been indicated about me. One is that I'm highly unlikely to enjoy strength training. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? They figured me out. But the other not-so-surprising result is that I, I descended from a king. You see, I got royalty blood inside of me. And I was like, so that means some things are going to have to start changing around this house. I'm going to expect things like your highness and sir... And those nice, fluffy, cushy, warm things I got around my feet, I want them at the bed so when I get up in the morning, my feet don't have to touch a cold ground. I am royalty. Royal feet don't walk on cold floors. And I was like, little girl, your daddy's a king. What, you know what that makes you? That makes you a princess. So don't talk to no boys. They ain't worthy. So I mean, it's changed me. There's a little crest and a crown above our doorway when you show up now. I pay people. They're just out here watching you to make sure nobody tries to come up to me. I mean, I got guards around me now. And This is really funny. I was like, this is incredible. I can literally trace my bloodline to a king. And I was sitting there reflecting and preparing for this message, and I was like, you know what? As someone who's a Christian, I got a far better deal than that. Because there is something far more powerful. Look, you just get the, the idea that you're responsible for your life, that'll change you. But as someone who is a Christian, and if you're in this room and you are a Christian, and I know there's some of us who are not, because I love that about this church, is that we have people across the board at all kinds of different places and stages and journeys in life. But at the heart of the Christian message is not just the power of responsibility, it is the power of resurrection. It is the power that the fact that God, who is king, stepped into this planet and through his life and his death was crucified on the cross and instead of him shifting blame, he takes on our blame and he dies for us. He takes the weight of the world on himself and then he's stuck in a tomb and what does he do three days later? He breaks forth out of that tomb to make a declaration that death and sin cannot hold him and by doing so establishes a whole new set of rules and a whole new way of living and out of that comes this thing called Christianity and that as Christians if you're in this room as Christians we don't just walk with the track of responsibility we walk in the powerful intersection of responsibility and resurrection which means that we are not defined by our DNA. We are not defined by what we have gone through. We do not allow people to describe or to define us because we have already been described and defined. The king of the universe, says, you are loved, you are valued, you are wanted, you have power, you can rise above. You are not defined by the circumstances of your life. We serve a God who walks through graveyards and sees coming attractions. That's what the intersection of responsibility and resurrection brings, it means that we can look in the mirror in there and know that there is a better version staring back at us on the inside because his power mixed with our responsibility can do extraordinary things, things that we cannot imagine or believe. That there is a better version of you, a new version of you that he's waiting to break through. That's what happens when responsibility and resurrection intersect as hope rises. And beauty comes out. Discipline comes out. Wise decisions come out. And that instead of having a life filled with regret, you have a life filled with transformation, with demonstration. You have a life filled with responsibility, intersecting resurrection, that's changing not just you, but those around you. That's what he holds out. And that regardless of where you are today and what part of the journey is, is that this is what I can say to all of you, that your year, this year, does not have to be filled with regret. It can be filled with results. And it starts with responsibility. And that if you're a Christian in here and that you've, you've stepped across that line, then to recognize that no matter where you find yourself in right now, there is hope, that there is power held out for you. And for those who are interested in Christianity, that we have pathways, we have places that we've created as a church so that you can explore and dialogue and dig in and deal with the difficult questions that many of you have around Christianity. Because God holds out all of us, this central promise that you do you and that I stepped in to transform you to make a difference in this world. And that the difference begins inside of us. Let's pray.